Open with me to Isaiah chapter 5. We're continuing on in a series uh, in Isaiah. Last week we looked at God's holiness. This week we're looking at judgment. And I know for some of you, in fact probably I reckon for most of you, uh, because you're like me, when we talk about judgment, you just cringe. Judgment for you is something that you feel uncomfortable with and makes you squirm. It's a common objection to Christianity. And today I really hope as we look at not only Isaiah chapter 5, but judgment in the, the book of Isaiah, that we might take judgment from being a source of embarrassment for you to something that you can really praise God for. I want to show us how his judgment is, in fact, glorious. So why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 1 before we pray. Isaiah 5.1 Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a white vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this morning we come before your throne, the Holy One of Israel. We ask, Lord, I ask that you remove any worldliness from amongst us, Lord. Worldliness that would stand above your word, Lord. Lord, help us to hear your word, your word of judgment, Lord. Help us to see you this morning rightly. Lord, we love you and we want to see more of you. And we pray, help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to start by reading for you from an article this week on the ABC. And this article is titled, Harley Hicks Sentenced to Life. The economist writes, A man who bludgeoned a baby to death in a cot after breaking into a Bendigo home has been jailed for life. A Victorian Supreme Court judge on Friday sentenced Harley Hicks to a minimum of 32 years in prison for the bashing murder of 10-month-old 
Zadenville Whiting during a burglary in 2012. In April, a jury found Hicks, 21, guilty of murdering Ville Whiting after breaking into his family's Long Gully house in the middle of the night and hitting him repeatedly with a homemade baton. In sentencing Hicks, Justice Stephen Kay described the murder as appallingly violent and utterly evil. This is the worst category of murder. The life of a baby is particularly special and precious. He was in the safety of his own home, Justice Kay said. It's almost unthinkable a human being could carry out, such, uh, carry out the crime. What you did was utterly evil. The judge read from the impact statement of Zayden's father, James Whiting, in which he described the time since his son's death as the most difficult and painful the family had ever had to endure. The tragic and needless loss of my son Zayden devastated us all and still does to this very day, the statement read. I don't even know where to begin to express the pain I hold in my heart. Friends, I think there's something about this story, hearing about this act of evil, that it just, on one level, it sickens you, doesn't it? And on another level, it just makes you cry out. Cry out for justice for those that are the victims of it. And cry out for punishment upon the man who committed this crime. Something in us, I say, that longs for justice. But friends, this is one example of a world that is full of evil. And it doesn't take much prying to see it at all. We have a sex slave trade affecting millions. There's religious persecution, there's sweatshops, there's exploitation. Even this past week, on the news, we hear about ISIS, Islamic State, in Syria and Iraq. Photos posted to uh, Instagram of men slaying hundreds of unarmed Iraqi soldiers. Mass executions. It's absolute wickedness. Absolute evil. And I think there's part of us, as we look at this world, that longs for it to to be put to right. We long for justice, for perpetrators to be held to account for what they've done. Well, there's some good news. And that is that for a world that's full of wickedness, abuse, corruption, oppression, for a world that's full of evil, there is a God who promises judgment. This message uh, is entitled, Behold Your Redeemer in His Judgment. And we just really have three, three points that we'll be looking at. That's judgment is kindled. Judgment is personal and judgment is absorbed. Three points, but one real driving point behind this message, and that's that as you rightly see God's judgment in view of the cross, you would worship him. One hope for this message, and that's that as you see God and his judgment rightly, And that is in view of the cross of Jesus Christ, you would be moved to worship him. So that's where we're trekking. That's where we're going. But let us turn back to our text and, and get stuck in with our first point. Judgment is kindled. Well, just by way of context, we are actually this week moving backwards from where we are looking at chapters, chapter five in particular. Chapters one through to five really are the backdrop to Isaiah's commissioning. In chapter 6, 
In chapter 6, God commissions Isaiah as the prophet to send out his message. And in chapters 1 through to 5, we really get to hear about the context, the backdrop to his time. And last week, I think Dave did a great job of helping us to see something of what had been happening. We had Uzziah, the king, who had been reigning for 52 years. And from his 52-year reign, the people of God, the people of Israel had become rich, had become prosperous, there was peace, there was military growth. And what had come from this is that there began to appear this wealthy landed class in Israel, this landed class that are driven to possess more and more and more land and spend their wealth more and more lavishly. But they're not criticized for having much. They're criticized that they move to spend their wealth on themselves. And as I was reading uh, this chapter this week, actually, and the description of this, I just... I just couldn't help but feel, couldn't help but see something of our context right here in Sydney. Something of the prosperous city that that we live in. So let's get stuck in and read again from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved... My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Isaiah begins, and he begins with a love song. He begins with a love song. Why? Well, it's a love song because it's about the God who Isaiah loves, his beloved. Isaiah loves God. He's passionate about God. He loves God with his whole heart. Well, it's not just a love song because it's about the one Isaiah loves. It's a love song because it's about God and his love for his people. God's love for his people. God is described as a vine dresser with a vineyard. God builds this vineyard on a fertile hill, it says. And he goes into some detail. He clears the land, a laborious task of stones. He builds a wall around it. He plants a hedge around it. He builds a watchtower to watch over his vineyard. A laborious process. He plants his vineyard, the grape vines of which he hopes to harvest. And implicitly in the text, as the readers would have known, he waits the two years it would have taken to reap a harvest of grapes. And what he reaps is not good grapes, it's unedible grapes. It's wild, sour grapes. Let's read on. In response to this, God says, verse 5, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds and they will not rain upon it. God says, I'm going to destroy it. But he doesn't destroy it by coming and actively wiping out. How does he promise to destroy it? He promises to destroy it by removing all of his protection and care. God says, I am removing my gracious protection from it. No walls, no hedges, no pruning, no care, no rain, no water. No more. Why? 
why, 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 is he, why is he doing this? Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looks for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. It's a beautiful summation of the passage. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's particularly beautiful. He says he looked for justice, mishpat, but instead he found blood, bloodshed, mishpach. He looked for righteousness, sadakah, but instead he found screams for help, sadakah. God says, I planted my people. I grew this nation hoping to reap righteousness, but instead wickedness and sin is what he found. And so he goes on to list these fruits, these bad fruits that he sees in his people with six woes. Uh, The word woe that's used, I mean, we talked about it last week, is often a warning from the prophets. But as much as it is a warning in Hebrew, it's also a lament. It's probably the closest description of it in English you could get. It's something like this. It's something like, ah. And so as we read this, you know, I want you to, to, to read it with me with that sort of, ah. It's like anguish. It's, it's woe. It's a lament. It's, 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 he's affected by this. So read with me verses 8 to 9. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more. And you are to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. They're greedy. He doesn't criticize them here that they have beautiful homes. No, the criticism is that they acquire more and more land until they dwell in it alone. They are greedy for selfish gain. Selfish gain at the expense of others. We'll read on. They're debaucherous. Verses 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast. It's like they're wealthy. They're not only wealthy with all this land, but, but they party all day. They seem to have no concerns. Their life is one big, big party where they just enjoy and they're seemingly carefree, ignoring God. Read on more than this. Verse 18. Ah, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed in his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. They are arrogant. They say to Isaiah, you talk about all this judgment coming, let's see it. You know, talk to your God and tell him to bring it quickly so that we can see this judgment because we don't believe it. They are arrogant and so... It goes on, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They, they look on and they call things that are wicked in God's eyes. They say, that's good. And things that are good in God's eyes, they say that they're wicked because they're arrogant. They trust in themselves. They trust in their own judgment. But even more than this, the fruit continues. Verse 22. Ah, to those who are heroes at drinking wine and a valiant man in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Friends, these people are more concerned about getting sloshed than they are about justice. And they'd rather accept a bribe than they would see the innocent rightly freed. It's a grieved Isaiah that lists this bad fruit. His people have produced absolute bad, rotten fruit. And there's a clear clear consequence. Read with me. Verse 24. Because of this, he says, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah says, they will rot. He says, judgment. Why? Well, the answer is because they've rejected the law. They've rejected the word of Yahweh. And this really comes to the heart of what sin fundamentally is this rejection of God and self-kingship. You know, I think so often we can have wrong thinking about sin. We think of sin as keeping morals, as ticking boxes, as doing the right thing. But fundamentally, according to Scripture, that's not really what sin is. Sin is something far worse, something far deeper, something far more essential to the human heart. John Oswald says this. He says, above everything else, sin is rebellion for Isaiah. God is the only Lord, the the Holy One. He has made all things for his sovereign purposes. He is directing history to its final conclusion of universal health and peace. How incredible then that a human being, the work of his hands, should stand up against him and say no. Yet we have done so, and all the evil in the world springs from that refusal to accept God's fundamental lordship. Sin, friends, is making yourself king. It's saying, I call the shots, I make the rules, no one tells me how to live. Self-kingship. Friends, it's self-confidence. I trust in myself. It's self-fulfillment. I I please myself. It's self-determination. I choose for myself. It's self-interest. I live for myself. I am the most important thing in my life. I am the king of myself. This, friends, is self-worship. This is sin. And the question I want to ask us this morning is who then here amongst us does not stand condemned. Who here amongst us is not stand self-condemned of self-worship? 
acting first and foremost in our own self-interest. The result of this, according to Isaiah, is clear. Verse 25. He says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still." God's anger is kindled like fire. And like fire in a dry wilderness of Palestine, it is difficult to quench. He will strike his people in judgment. Well, with the people who have turned their back on him, God's judgment is kindled, kindled like fire. Well, we've seen God's people as a vineyard with rotten fruit. What then of his judgment? Is, is he like a king who just loses the plot or is he like his anger like, like an atomic bomb that just goes off and it just indiscriminately annihilates everything in its path? Well, to answer this, we turn to our second point, uh, which is judgment is personal. The first thing I, I want us to, to see, and I believe that Isaiah shows us about God and his judgment, is that he is, in fact, the loving creator. Read with me again this, this chapter 5, verse 1. Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Friends, it's a love song. It's the love song of a tender-hearted creator. You know, are you offended by God's judgment? Are you offended by the idea of Him judging us for sin? Well, first and foremost, if He's your maker, like this parable, a planter of a vineyard, if He's your maker, you have as much cause to be offended as chalk writing on a chalkboard does it being wiped off. We have as much cause to be offended as a broken clay pot does at being cast aside in the bin. If he's our maker, which he is, he owes us nothing. He made us. We are his. We belong to him. But he's not just our maker. He's also a loving father. I want to read again from chapter 1, which we read two weeks ago. Isaiah writes in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He goes on, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God is our maker. He's our creator. But he's also loving father. Loving father, maker, creator. That is who he is. He's not just our loving creator. He's also just. He's also righteous. His accusation against his people, it's, it's not that they're puny, that they're weak, that they're mortal, or that they're lazy and worthless. No, his accusation against his people is that they're wicked. His accusation is that they're evil, that they're unjust. 
And so he says in verse 25, his anger is kindled against them. He burns against his people because they're wicked. Read with me, verse 15, chapter 5. He says, man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the Holy One shows Himself holy in righteousness. God says, I'm going to show the whole world what I'm like. That I'm righteous. That I'm just. And then I'm holy. And the result is that His very being is opposed to wickedness. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And so we read, as we saw this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah stands before the throne of a holy God, as he sees that vision of God with the train of his robe filling the entire temple, as he sees the cherubim hiding their faces and their feet from before him, such is the burning power of his holiness. And what is his response in light of all of this? He said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory. As I stand before the throne of a holy God, a God whose anger, a God whose holiness is kindled against his people. And he says, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. He is a consuming fire that burns against all evil. I was thinking about this this week. It's like, imagine going to the shops and witnessing the assault of a child. Your child. And the child is helpless as a gang of men lay blow after blow upon its helpless body. And imagine your response. Would you turn and ignore it? Would you pay no attention? No. I tell you that with every ounce of your energy, you would cry out for that child. With every ounce of your being, you would run to intervene to protect that child. Friends, this is but a a small glimpse of the nature of our God. He is holy. And just like in holiness, in love, you cannot stand by and watch wickedness unfold so too for God. He is fundamentally opposed to it. Every bit of his being is opposed to it and therefore to us as well. John Stott puts it this way. He says, God's anger is absolutely pure and uncontaminated by those elements that render human anger sinful. Human anger is usually arbitrary and uninhibited. Divine anger is always principled and controlled. Our anger tends to be spasmodic outbursts aroused by peak and seeking revenge. God's is a continuous, settled antagonism aroused only by evil and expressed in its condemnation. 
God is entirely free from personal animosity or vindictiveness. Indeed, he is sustained simultaneously with love for the offender. Friends, God's anger, his wrath, his judgment does not contradict the fact that he is a God of love. In fact, the very opposite. His wrath, his anger, his judgment stems from the fact that he is a God of love. And he will not tolerate evil. He will not tolerate the destruction of those he loves. His love is personal. His judgment is personal. Well, judgment is kindled. Judgment is personal. Judgment is absorbed. I think we can hopefully now see that the Holy One, the righteous Lord of armies, our God's being, he burns against the people he's made, a a people who have turned into wicked rebels. And, And as a result, Isaiah describes two forms of judgment that he will place upon his people. The first is a giving over, the removal of his protective care. Read verse 5 and 6 again. He says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they will not rain upon it. In the vineyard that he has made, God says, He will remove his hedge. He will remove his pruning. He will remove his care. He will remove the wall that he's built around it. He will prevent rain and watering from coming upon it. He will remove his gracious care. He gives his people up to the elements and to the nations in judgment. Paul says it this way in Romans 1 when he describes how people who have known God oppress him, suppress the truth and have turned their back on on him. He says three times and God gave them up. He gave them up to the lusts of the heart and impurity, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. He gives them up. To a people that turn their back on him, that say, God, we want no more. God's judgment is, have it your way. God's judgment is to let his people have what they've asked for. You want to live without me? God says, okay. C.S. Lewis, he describes it this way. He says, on that final day, there'll be two sorts of people. Those that say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. He gives over. He removes his gracious protection. But there's a second kind of judgment coming. God's, God's anger, God's judgment is not that easily kindled. His being burns against. And so there's this final day that is promised in Isaiah, a day of the Lord, a day of vengeance. And so at the end of the book in Isaiah 63, verse 1, Isaiah writes, Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who tread in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. 
Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? Now Isaiah has this vision of God dressed in a white robe, stained with blood. And in the vision, the vision is of God trampling his enemies on a final day of vengeance, a day of judgment. And God says, I looked for someone to join me in my cause of defeating my enemies and there was no one. So I did it alone. And Isaiah goes on in chapter 66, verse 15, he says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And to end the whole book in verse 24, he says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In the book of Isaiah, God promises a day, a final day of judgment. The Holy One of Israel, his anger, his wrath against wickedness will not be easily quenched, and so he promises a great final day when all will stand before him. But the question is, who can possibly stand on that day? Who can possibly stand on that day before the Lord? And to answer this question, we need to turn now to look at the greatest display of God's judgment against evil. The greatest display of God's judgment against all wickedness, and that's the cross. You see, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah begins to talk about a servant. A servant who is God himself, God with us, Emmanuel. A servant who is humbled, who is shamed, who is mocked, whose beard is plugged, who's spat upon, who's silent before his accusers, who has no form or beauty that we should desire him whatsoever. A servant who is his very own son. And the imagery is so vivid that we can almost see it. We can almost see it as the New Testament speaks of Christ having been scourged and beaten half to death. How he is led by his accusers away to the mount on which he was to be crucified. How they strip him of his clothes. How they lay him down upon that cross. How they drive rusty nails into his wrists and into his ankles and how they lift him up before the people who deride him, who mock him, who shame him, who revile him and how he cries out to his father in agony. But if we think only of the physical agony that Jesus Christ endured in that moment of the cross, we have missed 
the greatest of all his sufferings. We have absolutely missed the greatest of all the things he endured. Isaiah writes it this way in chapter 53, verse 5. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. If he died just physically on that cross, he could not have saved us. But far more was required. But on that cross, he absorbed the full judgment of God for all sin. In full. On that cross, he took. Consider with me for just one moment. Consider our anger at wickedness. Consider Harley Hicks, that man who beat that child 25 times with a, with, a, with a rod he had made until it was dead. Consider our anger. Now consider God's anger. A holy, righteous God whose very being burns against wickedness. Now consider all the wickedness in the world. All the murder all the lies, all the bribes, all the oppression, all the greed, all the corruption, all the adultery, plus millions and millions of people for thousands and thousands of years turning their back on Him. And on that cross, God's judgment in full placed upon His shoulders. What a scandal. What amazing grace. John Oswald writes about Isaiah 53 too in this way. He says, In this sense, the blood of God's enemies that stains the hem of his garment as he labors alone to bring deliverance is his own. He has become the enemy that even the enemy might know redemption if he chooses. Isn't that amazing? That God would crush his own son. That God would make his son his enemy in our place. That we might know redemption, his enemies, if we choose. God sends his son to absorb judgment in full. Well, how should we respond to this? How should we respond to God's judgment? Well, if rebels is what we were, then worship is the right response. Worship is the right response. Worship him for who he is and what he's done as we consider our God's judgment upon sin. As we consider all that he placed upon the shoulders of his son for us. We just move to praise him. We move to worship him. And as we worship him and praise him and look upon those that we know that, that do not know him, for whom the wrath and judgment of God is still upon their shoulders, we, we, we don't stand above them in, in, in sinful judgment. No, we don't condemn them. We look upon them 
in mercy and love and we see ourselves. And so as we worship him, we move to worship by speaking to them in love and seeking to win them and pull them to him, pleading with them. Friends, we respond to God's judgment with worship. I just want to address some of us, I believe, who are sitting here today and in this moment you realize that you have never truly worshipped God. You've never really sought to praise Him for His Son, Jesus. Maybe you're a religious person, you attend church, you've gone to church But in this moment, you realize that, in fact, you are a rebel. You have been living for yourself, acting to please yourself, trusting in yourself and your own good deeds, and that God's wrath lays upon your head. Well, friends, in a moment, we're going to move to a time of singing his praise. And I just invite you, if that's you, there's good news for you. The message of the gospel is clear for those who cry out in repentance. That is, turning their back, making a decision to change their mind, saying, no, Lord, I will not be the king of my own life. I will take you as the king of my life. I will trust in you. For those who turn away from rebellion, there is forgiveness and there is salvation from God's judgment. Friends, if that's you, This morning, I just ask you, just come and speak to me. I'd love to pray with you and and help you to receive that gift. But for the rest of us, let's close by praying and thanking God as we behold our Redeemer in his judgment. His judgment kindled. His judgment is personal. His judgment is absorbed. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for your cross. What amazing grace that you would uphold your righteous anger, that you would serve justice once and for all in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, amazing grace that you would make him your enemy for us. Lord, Help us to worship you in response, Lord. Lord, as we consider the cross, may we never grow weary of it. But day by day, may we grow in thanks for all you've done for us. Praise in Jesus' name.